Our epistle lesson this morning is found in Colossians chapter 4. We are closing our series today. We're focused in particular on verses 2 through 6, which is what I'll read this morning. Listen carefully to God's word. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks for your word. It is true and it is trustworthy. In it, you relay your grace to us and you also grant us your commandments. And so, Lord, we confess our own weakness. We confess our own stubbornness today as we come and we ask that you would teach us. We ask that you would lead us into all truth. Speak by your spirit today. For your servants are listening. Amen. As a young college student, I remember attending a seminar put on by a college ministry addressing the issue of time management. It was, of course, pressing for us because there were cute girls attending most likely. The seminar encouraged us to think about life in four quadrants. We were to think about the intellectual sphere of life. We are to think about the social sphere of life. We are to think about the physical sphere of life and the spiritual sphere of life. And so to employ the time management scheme, you looked at each of those spheres and then you divided up your week according to some different priorities addressing each of those things. There were of course some helpful things that you could learn from the approach but there were also some very unintended consequences and implications that flowed from it. And specifically, one of the consequences was is that it inclined us to think of our Christian faith as one component or one category or one compartment of human life, of a healthy human life. And the, in the end... It had this incredible tendency to compartmentalize Jesus, to make him one aspect of a life well lived. And we tended to make one of two mistakes with that. Either we thought Jesus was irrelevant to the other quadrants and didn't have anything to say about them, or we thought that those other quadrants beyond the spiritual were really irrelevant and unimportant. A few years later, a pastor introduced me to a collection of books, a series of authors writing on topics, and they were closely related to one another. They were men like Francis Schaeffer, Chuck Colson, the other one, and Abraham Kuyper. And here I was finding something completely different. They weren't writing about time management, but they were writing about the Christian life, and they were pressing me to understand that all of life was lived before the face of God, that there was not an area that was neutral, that there was not an area that was exempt, 
that all of life was lived before God and you could not compartmentalize it and you could not categorize it, that it was all to be yielded to him. The idea, the leading idea, was that if Jesus defeated sin and death, if he had conquered over all evil and then rose from the dead and ascended to God's right hand where he is now ruling over the world, that all of life is answerable to him, that he has a claim upon everything. And that the reign of Jesus over everything changes everything because he's reconciling all things in heaven and on earth to himself. And we've seen this in Colossians 3, running into chapter 4. This is precisely what Paul has been arguing, that our lives are hidden with Christ in God and Jesus is reigning at God's right hand, ruling over the nations of the earth. And so what many consider to be the practical portion of Paul's letter is actually deeply theological. That because we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places, everything changes. Last week we saw that everything changes, particularly with regards to the Christian household. That there are implications for the Christian home. And we receive instructions about how to structure and how those relationships are to operate. And this week, we see that God claims not only the Christian household, but he also claims our speech. And he instructs us about how we are to relate to those outside, those who do not share our faith in Jesus. So in everything we do, as he says in verse 17, we are to do it in and through Jesus and make an offering to God. And so today it's important for us to ask one very simple question and to find an answer to this question. But how do we conduct our relationships with those around us who do not share our faith in Jesus? This is the target of what the apostle is discussing in verses 2 through 6. And these relationships engross us, what Paul will argue here, that these relationships engross us in two dialogues. First, a dialogue running along the vertical axis in which we engage with God. And second, a dialogue running along the horizontal axis, axis in which we engage with our neighbors. And so let's consider both of those this morning. First, the vertical axis, our dialogue with God. Verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. The directive, the commandment is simple enough. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Be watchful in it with thanksgiving. And so God commands us here to present our request, our supplications to him. It's important to appreciate that God has the authority. He has the right to place claims upon our lives. He is the creator. He is also the redeemer. And he can direct us to pray. But it's equally important for us to recognize that while he has that authority and while he has that power to command us, we have to recognize that this precept is rooted in a privilege. That God is not actually just telling us to do something because he wants it. But actually to have the opportunity to make supplications, to bring our petitions and requests to God. To answer that precept is a privilege. Because, friends, the whole understanding of prayer is that prayer is a gift and it's a benefit. 
and it's yours because of what Jesus has done for you. That the true son has come into the world and he's given himself in your place. And then he has risen on your behalf and he's ascended to God's right hand and there he sits in God's presence and he mediates for you. And so we have the privilege of approaching God and we have access to him in and through the true son. And friends, this is the privilege of adopted sons and daughters is that we can speak to our father we can call him Father because Jesus is the one who grants us access. It's the privilege of a child who's been reconciled. And so we call on God. We are commanded to make intercessions because the Son enables us to do so. But Paul's instructions about prayer doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say pray. You note in the verse that he adds three modifiers to the way that we are to pray. First, he's going to say that we are to pray steadfastly in verse 2. And to pray steadfastly is to be vigilant, it is to be resolute, it is to be unwavering. And it doesn't take a great deal of imagination for us to understand why we need to be instructed to pray steadfastly. Why do we need to be commanded to be steadfast in our prayers? At the beginning of Luke 18, Jesus actually tells a parable to this effect. And we are told at the beginning of the parable that Jesus taught about persistence in prayer because we're prone to lose heart. And friends, this is why Paul has to command us to be steadfast in prayer. And it's because of this incredible weakness inside of us, an unfaithfulness and a fickleness that affects every one of us, that we're prone to lose heart. We like to pray and have immediate answers. We like God to operate like a genie in the bottle. But a bit of Christian experience teaches us that our prayers oftentimes aren't answered like that that sometimes the manner of God's answer is different than what we asked for. And also the timing of those answers works on a different scale than what we want. And so we struggle to be steadfast because we struggle to trust. And so Paul commands us to be steadfast, not growing tired and not losing heart. But the second way that he modifies this commandment to be prayerful is he says that we are to be watchful that is, we're to be watchful in our prayers. And you can ask the question, well, what exactly does that mean? And I believe what he's referring to here is to be alert, to be observant, to be aware. That is on the back side of the prayers. It's anticipating and expecting God to answer. Looking for ways that God answers and God, ways that God is at work in the world. We're to look for those answers from God, being watchful. And then finally, he adds the third modifier, because this watchfulness is to lead to something else. We're to be watchful with gratitude. And that is, friends, as we're alert and aware, and as we sense God working in the world, we're then not simply to leave it alone, being satisfied that we've gotten something from God but rather is to create this dialogue at a deeper level where there's the response of gratitude to the grace of God in which we offer thanks to him. 
And so we are to pray. We are to make intercessions and supplications. We are to do so steadfastly with an alertness and with gratitude. This is what our dialogue with God is to look like. But Paul's not done. Despite being short, compact verses, he presses more into what the life of prayer is to include. In verses 3 through 4, he goes further, where he goes into the content also of our prayers, pointing out what is to receive priority. Follow with me. At the same time, pray also for us, speaking of his apostolic company, the company of ministers, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. And here Paul brings something to our attention, something that is to be a subject of prayer, the content of our prayer, and perhaps something that receives a certain primacy, and that is the mission and the advance of the gospel throughout the world. If you reflect on how Jesus teaches us to pray, where does he begin? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, sanctified be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus there sets a priority for us. That yes, we are allowed to bring our personal and our private concerns to God. The second half of the Lord's Prayer addresses all of that. But friends, that's where we often leave our prayers. And we are not given permission in Scripture. God gives us no permission simply to bring, merely to bring our private concerns to him. That our concerns as a Christian are always for the world as well. That we're praying for a door for the word. The word of God to advance. The gospel to be known. The reconciling power of God amongst the nations at work. And so Paul instructs them about this content, that they are to be praying for the work of God, for the word to run and to be glorified throughout the world. As many of you know, I teach the worship course at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, teach it in various different formats over this past year, and so I've graded a lot of different papers. The final project for the students in the course is to construct a worship service, and they are to do a full draft manuscript. Every word that is to be spoken is really quite challenging. And in the pastoral prayer section, they are to write out a full pastoral prayer word for word, 500 to 800 words. And through the course, they've been taught about the content of Christian prayers through history and the types of things that Christians have prayed for in reflecting on Scripture. But one of the most regular things that happened in evaluating these different services that were turned in to me was that the content of those prayers was rather short-sighted. It was rather myopic. The content of those prayers was sometimes very personal and pastoral, actually very appropriate, praying for people in congregations, praying about local needs happening in their body. But I would say in over 80% of the prayers that I read, there was not reference to the broader work of God in the world. And friends, we 
here receive something about the primacy of what we are to be praying for. Yes, all of our private concerns, but we have no permission. We have no instruction from God to limit our prayers to those private concerns. Our prayers are to be big and swelling, praying that the grace of God is shed abroad throughout the nations, asking the word of God to run and be glorified, asking God to sanctify and hallow his name throughout the world, that men and women from every tribe and tongue and nation would come. This is what is to characterize our dialogue with God. It is to be steadfast. It is to be alert. It is to be thankful. And it is to be big. Praying for that audacious thing of God's glory to fill the earth even as the waters cover the sea. From time to time as a pastor, I get feedback that our prayers here at Christ Church are repetitious. I always answer that and say yes. You're alert, observant. And the reason for the repetition, of course, is to teach values. And there, of course, can be other ways of doing repetition, and so it's helpful feedback. But friends, we always begin our pastoral prayers every week with a prayer of concern for the nations of the earth and the advance of the gospel. It is to write this into the fabric of your Christian life by what we do here on Sunday morning. But second, Paul takes us from that vertical axis, that vertical axis of our dialogue with God, and he then takes us in the next verses into the horizontal axis, our dialogue with our neighbors. If you follow in verse 5, he says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. We are to move from our dialogue with God into a dialogue that takes us into the world with those whom we live with and who are all around us. And God instructs us to walk in wisdom. This is not the first time that we've run into this word wisdom in the letter to the Colossians. It's actually used very frequently. And what we learn specifically at the end of chapter 1, bleeding into chapter 2, is that wisdom refers to all the treasures, the benefits, the good things that God has given us in Jesus. And it also refers to this great revelation that has taken place through the cross of Jesus, that God is now reconciling men and women from every tribe and tongue to himself, that the Gentiles have been granted access through Jesus Christ. This is the wisdom. And so we are told to walk in that wisdom with our neighbors with those who are outside of the church. That is that we are to commend Jesus and we are to look for the God who's working in the world to reconcile all the nations to himself. Then in verse six, he elaborates more about this speech. He says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. In hearing that our speech is to be gracious, seasoned with salt, there are two implications that are important for us to reflect on. The first is that gracious speech involves the content of our words. That means that we're to speak with our neighbors about the grace of God. Our priority is not to talk about the decline and change in Western culture. Our priority is not to discuss the ethical system that informs non-believers. 
Our priority is not to gripe about our governing authorities, and our priority is not simply to be liked and accepted by our non-Christian friends. No, the priority is for our speech to be gracious, that is filled with the grace of God. Speech that is filled with the news of God's deliverance. Singing a new song, celebrating that this God has done everything in Jesus to reconcile us to himself. All that this God has done to make us his own. And announcing that and sharing that, being enthralled with it. This is the priority of our speech, is to speak of the good news of God's grace. But second, this gracious speech also involves the character of our words. Not only its content, but the character of it. And that is that our speech is to be filled with a tone of grace. That is that our speech is not to be caustic, it's not to be arrogant, it's not to be critical. Our engagement with our neighbors is to have that gracious tone. Several weeks ago, I was in the car dealership Colson family is at one of those unique moments where we own a fleet of cars. <laughs> Looks like a used car lot at our house. We were in need of another vehicle, and so I spent my Saturday in the Subaru dealership in Orange Park. And I took my computer because I knew it was going to take time. And so I was sitting at a small table working on the sermon for that Sunday, writing away attempting to pull away from everything else going on as other people were haggling for prices and all the craziness. And so my salesman came back over and he sat down. And he was sitting down not to share any news with me about the process of our deal. He just sat down to talk. And so I knew at that moment that I really had no option. <laughs> was I really just supposed to I was supposed to ignore him and, and continue on with my sermon. And then he asked me, he said, what do you do? I said, I'm, I'm a pastor. I'm also a professor. I teach at a local seminary. And friends, I've had this conversation about a million times, okay? And I know exactly when I'm asked what I do, what happens next. There's normally an awkward glance at the feet. And it's like, oh, that's good for you. That's nice. And the conversation is over. It's done. But this young guy is actually from Cambodia, grew up in a refugee camp. He moved to the United States as a young adult. And so he was curious. And he asked me, he said, what made you become a pastor? And I have to confess to you, I was floored. I've only had like advanced Christians ask me that question. What made you become a pastor? Why were you interested in that? And so I gave him an answer and we began to talk about it and asked if he had any exposure to the church. And he went on to tell me that his wife has been invited recently to a Bible study out of a Cambodian church here in the city of Jacksonville and that they've been asking him to attend and he was thinking about it. Like he was kind of open. He didn't really know what a Christian was though. I did not engineer this conversation. I tried everything I could do to avoid it, okay? And then there it was. You know, a word in season, an opportunity. And friends, this is the way that it happens. 
and that, if, and, and that God is committed and that God is at work in the world and being watchful and available and alert and ready. And then knowing that God, through gracious speech, that is speech filled with the news of the gospel, speech that is kind and not arrogant, speech that is loving and winsome, that this is what he would have from us, dialoguing with our neighbors about him. And so, friends, this is God's claim on our life, that in our relationships with those outside the church, that we maintain two dialogues, a dialogue on that vertical axis with him, in which we speak with God about the advance of his word, the advance of his glory throughout the world, through the preaching of the gospel, and that we then engage a dialogue with our neighbors, those who are outside, those in need of the reconciling work of God. And so the vertical and the horizontal, this is God's claim. And so let's ask for his help that we can walk in both of those. Let's pray. Father, you instruct us that everything in life belongs to you, including our speech, and even our relationships with those who are outside of the church. And so help us to hear today. Dig out ears that we hear and that we engage these two dialogues, a dialogue with you about your world and a dialogue with our neighbors about you. Fill us with gracious speech. Fill us with prayers focused upon your glory in the world. Direct us, set our priorities, and help us in all of our weakness. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.